I think COVID has been a gift to the church. I don't always see it that way. It's been hard on many of us, I think. But I was reminded this week of this phrase or this verse. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, this is what the author of Hebrews is speaking of here is is the earth in its entirety, that all of creation will be shaken and undone so that what is not temporary may remain. But I think we often can see that that there are things that God graciously brings difficulties and trials into the life of the church to shake it. That what is genuine might be revealed and what is not might be revealed as well. Fully one-third to one-half of, 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 of church attenders have not returned to their home churches. I was talking to Chris's dad. Uh, I believe uh, one-sixth of their church has returned, from 3,000 to 500. I'm not, I'm not here to say that, that those who have not yet returned to church are not Christians. And that is, that is not what I want you to hear, and it's not what I'm saying. But I think the church has been shaken and I think it has revealed something among us that, uh, that is really important. And I think one of the things that COVID has revealed is an insufficient ecclesiology, a deficient ecclesiology. Let me explain that word to you. Ecclesia is the Greek word that we translate church. We're going to see today how else it gets translated in Scripture. But ecclesiology is then the study or or the doctrine, the knowledge of the church. I think COVID has revealed among the church in America a deficiency in our ecclesiology that maybe on this persecuted prayer for persecuted church Sunday has not been true of churches that are persecuted. I think it also reveals the reality that pastors, probably including myself, have not taught the church well about the nature of the church. And so I want to reverse that. It is not merely an indictment against the church that we don't think well of the church. It is an indictment against pastors. So there's my confession. It's also been hard. People you love and have loved people you have served, families you have cared for, met the needs of, invested in their children, and maybe their marriages have up and left. And that's hard. Sometimes they've up and left over masks. Church, would you hear with me the silliness of that statement? That a mask could somehow have more power amongst God's people than the unifying blood of Christ. What are we doing? What are we doing? I I don't know. To be fair though, if you're a non-masker, the decision to come here is much easier than those 
who, uh, who, who think it important and necessary to wear masks. Especially those who have real, genuine medical conditions. And so I just want to be fair about that. I recently heard somebody say, and I think it's true, that we have adopted an insufficient ecclesiology, an insufficient uh, practice even among the church for the sake of the mission. And I I think that's true. And 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 to some degree, uh, even maybe okay. But we need a sufficient ecclesiology sooner than later. Because Jesus bought the church with his own blood. Scripture tells us that we are the bride of Christ, children of God. Brothers and sisters, the church matters. The church is God's advancement plan for his kingdom. And so this series is not really going to be a verse by verse through a book of the Bible series, but it's going to be a broad sweep through the New Testament about the church. It's going to be from my heart to yours. And so today, as I wasn't expecting to be able to start this series today, but as we have that privilege, I just want to share with you kind of eight foundational points about the church that will lead into what we'll see in the coming weeks. So number one. The church is a gathered family of believers. The church is a gathered family of believers. We should have slides in there, do we not? Let's keep going. Oh, we're going to have to... There should be a different background to fire that that, uh, doesn't cover up those, those words. There we go. Okay. The local church is a gathered family of believers. I, um, I'm here to announce something to you today. Uh, many of you, uh, maybe some of you are Seattle Seahawks fans. If you're a Seahawks fan, raise your hand, please. Come on, you have to put, yeah, two hands there. Uh, many of you probably know, if you don't already, that Russell Wilson is injured I have decided that I am going to be the the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks in his place. However, so as of today, as of this public announcement, I am now a Seattle Seahawk. But I don't want you to worry. And here's why. Because I'm not going to leave here. I'm going to continue to do all of my duties here. I'm not going to go to practice. I'm not going to go to games. But I'm still going to be the Seattle Seahawks quarterback. Now, this does not make any sense, does it? If you don't go to practice and if you don't participate in the games, you are not a Seahawk. Now, let me ask you this. In, in, uh, conversely to that, Russell Wilson, who is currently injured and probably neither practicing nor playing, is he a Seattle Seahawk? Yes, he is. When he goes home, is he a Seattle Seahawk? Yes, he is. It is the very nature of the fact that that a team gathers both for practice and for performance, I'm speaking in sports terms here, that makes them a part of the team. Even when they're together, When they're together, they're certainly a team. And even when they're apart, they're a team. But we've, we've somehow failed to understand this amongst the church. We seem to think we can be part of a local church and never attend. 
never be present, never participate, never engage in the mission of the church, never gather for practice, and yet still be part of that team. But it doesn't work that way. When we gather as a church, it is what defines us as a church in the way it defines a team as a team. And then when we scatter, we remain part of that team. We remain part of that church. But as soon as we fail to regularly participate in the gathering of the church and regularly participate in the mission of the church, we have ceased to continue to be part of that church. A church is not just scattered believers all over the world. When I run into another believer in the grocery store, that does not constitute a church. And we'll explain why probably another day. But today, I want us to understand that a church is a gathered family of believers. Now, I want us to look first at two passages in Acts 19. Let me describe the situation to you. Paul has preached the gospel. I believe this is in Ephesus. And, uh, and there's, there's uh, a temple there, and there's worship there. And the silversmiths in Ephesus have a great trade in, uh, in, in creating these silver idols, And as the gospel spreads there, the idol trade shrinks. And now these wealthy idol silversmiths aren't making very much money. And they're upset. And they start a riot. And in the midst of this riot, the whole town comes together. And and as the town is rioting, in fact, I will turn there. And if you would like to turn there, you you can as well. We'll be looking at the end of chapter 19. Uh, When they, um, so the gospel's being preached. And then in verse 26, we're told when they heard this, that is the crowd in Ephesus, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this is not the church This is the the rioting mob in Ephesus. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's uh, companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, someone cried out one thing and some another. Let's go ahead and put the verse up. There it is. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So this assembly is a rioting mob that is anti-gospel, anti-Christian worshipers of Artemis of the Ephesians. I'll give you one guess what Greek word is lying behind the word assembly. It is ekklesia. It is church. It's the word we translate church. And then later, as, this, uh, as the description goes on, Acts 19.19, 19, as this, the, the mob has been settled down a little bit, we're told if you seek anything further, it will be settled. You can go ahead and put the next slide up. It will be settled in the regular Assembly. 
The word church, the word ecclesia in Greek, is not a word that is distinct to a group of Christians, whether they're gathered or scattered. The word church means assembly. It means gathering. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, these verses are up there for you as well. Paul tells us, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This means that each of us is a part of the body, a part of the church, but no one of us individually makes up the whole. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, speaking of communion in which we will participate today, we are told, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, it is the coming together that defines what the church is. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Paul goes on from there to explain how the divisions reveal what is true and what is not true, who are genuine believers and who are not. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Being a part of Trinity is not just calling Trinity your home church. It is regularly participating in the assembly, the ecclesia, for the practice and mission of the church. Secondly, the church is ruled by Jesus. The church is ruled by Jesus. Now, I think this is uh, maybe self-evident, but I'll just share a couple of verses with you as well. But this sets an important stage for the next couple of points I would like to make. Ephesians 1.22, And he, that is the Father, put all things under his, that is Jesus' feet. The Father has put all things in subjection to Christ and gave him as head over all things to the church. In other words, it is not just the church that Christ rules, it is all things that Christ rules, and that rule of Christ is God's gift to the church. Do you see Christ's rule of your life as a gift or as a hardship? Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he, again that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is the head of the church. But how does he rule his church? How does he lead his church? He does so by means of his word. Number three, the local church is built on God's word. The local church is built on God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, speaking of the church, says that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In other words, apostles, New Testament, prophets, Old Testament, Christ himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the first stone laid in a foundation. If it wasn't square, the foundation wouldn't be square. If it wasn't set at the proper angle, neither would the rest of the building. The, found, the cornerstone, as they built in that time, and if you spend any time building foundations as I have, you know getting that first angle right matters greatly. Christ 
is the cornerstone. He is the one that defines the direction of the church, the shape of the church. It is Christ who who defines the correctness of the church. He is the cornerstone that sets the shape to all of it, but he has done so by his word that complete the foundation of the church, and then we build upon that. When you build a skyscraper, you don't build multiple foundations. We don't need to add to God's word, and we certainly don't need to take away from it. He has laid the foundation, and we just build floor after floor after floor after floor, generation after generation after generation of believers in the church until he returns. But you don't build a building by laying a foundation and building a story and laying a foundation and building a story. You lay one foundation. This is why Jude says that we are to contend for the faith handed down once for all. Christ rules his church, but he does so through his word. It is how he builds his church. It is what he is building his church upon. So the church is ruled by Jesus. It is built on God's word. But fourthly, the local church is built by Jesus. We will take much greater look at Matthew 16, 18 next week. Um, And in fact, we're going to take a a significant look at this. But Peter and the apostles and Jesus uh, are at Caesarea Philippi. It is a place that is rife with pagan worship. There's one spot where water comes right out of a rock wall and carved into this area is all of these like niches for idols to be set. And it was a place of pagan worship named after Herod Philip. This is where they are given to Caesar, or maybe built by Herod Philip, I don't remember exactly, but devoted to Caesar, that's why it's called Caesarea Philippi, it was a center of pagan worship. And Jesus, probably standing where all these idols are, says, who do you say that I am? In in contrast to all of these idols, he is presenting himself to them as Lord, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He gets it right. He gets Jesus' mission right. He's the Savior. He gets his character right. He's the Son of God. That is God himself. And Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, a word for pebble, and on this rock, a word for like mountainside, I will build my church. It's very obvious in Greek that that Jesus is not saying he's going to build his church on Peter, but he's going to build his church on Peter's confession. That it is those who, like Peter, agree that Jesus is both Savior and Lord who are part of the church. And he says, on this rock, on that confession, you will build my church. Oh, let's never mistake who builds the church. It is not we who build the church. It is Christ who builds his church. On this rock, on this confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is ruled by Jesus, built on God's word and built by Jesus. However, according to Jesus' design as the cornerstone who sets the direction, the local church is led by pastors and elders. Same term, same office. In fact, there are three, uh, three words in the New Testament uh, 
that, that describe the role of, of those who lead the church. Pastor, the, the word in Greek behind pastor is actually shepherd. It is a shepherding role. It is an elder role, it is an honorable role, and it is an overseer role. It is a genuinely authoritative role. The church is led by pastors and elders. And so pastor refers to the nature of the work, it is shepherding. Elder refers to the honor of the work, and an overseer refers to the authority of the work. But notice that I did not say the church is ruled by pastors and elders. I don't believe that churches should be elder Ruled. If you want further definition on what that means, come see me later. The church is led, not driven by pastors and elders. And you'll see those three terms all come out in this passage. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd, there's that pastor word, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There's the overseer word. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not, there's some pastors that need to hear this next phrase, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The church is led by pastors and elders. However, point number six, the local church's leadership is accountable to the congregation. The local church's leadership is accountable to the congregation. I don't believe in elder rule because of this. I believe that the leadership of the church is and must always be accountable to its membership. Buckle up as we look through a lot of verses here pretty quickly. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. We're going to expand that a little. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, uh, we're going di- to talk about this more next week, but I want you to see that because I want you to see that, that uh, in the next verses, Matthew 18, 15 through 18, that Jesus is referring back to what he just said there. Matthew 18, 15 through 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the elders. No. Church leaders, pastors, overseers. No. What is the final authority presented to us in this passage for correcting a sinning brother or sister in Christ? It is not the church's leadership, it is the church itself. We see this again in 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 5, where a brother is uh, guilty of uh, significant sin. He says there, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, notice he assumes an assembly, In the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, 
You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Is, is 1 Corinthians written to church leaders or to a church? It is written to a church. As good individualistic Americans, we tend to read every occurrence of you in the New Testament as singular. Most of them are plural. English needs a different second-person plural. Texas gets it right with y'all. Y'all. Y'all are to, del- to deliver this man to Satan, y'all. Why? It is the church that disciplines members, not its leadership. Because the church is the final authority on earth other than God's Word. 2 Corinthians 2, 5-7. through seven. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. In this case, the disciplined person has repented, and Paul is telling, oh, reaffirm your love for him. Draw him back in. Bring him back into the fellowship because he has repented. The removal from the fellowship has done its job in 1 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, now we're being told to receive this brother. But notice who is to receive the brother. It is not the church's leadership. It is the majority that is to do so. Uh, I I think I have Galatians 1, 1 through 9 up there, but we're going to skip over it. Uh, I'll I'll just kind of tell you what you'll find in Galatians. Uh, Galatians is the only book written by Paul of all 13 letters that he wrote where he does not commend the church that he writes to. He has nothing good to say to the church in Galatia. They have traded grace for law. And they have allowed legalistic teachers to come in and instruct them. And does Paul write to the leaders saying, correct your doctrine? He does not. Does he write to the leaders who have maintained good doctrine? He does not. He writes to the church. And he calls the church to correct its doctrine. For the church to correct its leaders. Brothers and sisters, the church is not ruled by its pastors and elders. It is ruled by Christ, who does so by his word, who gives pastors and elders to the church as a gift for leadership, who are, unlike Jesus, sinful, fallen people, who need the accountability of a congregation under the authority of God's word. I got to tell you, if you could give me just an extra moment here, I know we're running short on time today, but, uh, but, but please let, uh, let me, if I may, take just a moment here and say, I know that some of what we're doing as leaders is hard on you. I know that some of you have struggled under, why can't non-members serve in specific ways? Why why won't the pastors and elders just let it go? Why don't we just fudge the rules a little bit here? Brothers and sisters, I can't do that. Because our constitution, our bylaws, and our policies are the rules that you have put in place that govern how I and the other elders are allowed to lead. The reason I can't set those rules aside is because they're not mine to set aside. 
I must lead this church in submission to you. And so if you come to me and you say, Logan, I know the bylaws say this, can we please just let it slide? My answer is going to be no. Because I don't have the authority to usurp the congregation. Because God's word doesn't give me that authority. God's word commands me to submit myself to you. And so if you've bumped up against that, if you've bumped up against the bylaws, and it feels like, man, I know this is what the bylaws say, but but why can't we just look the other way on this matter? It's because I cannot, in good integrity, before God, defy the boundaries that you have placed on my leadership. Church leaders are accountable and submitted to the congregation. We must be and we will be. My voice is only one amongst the elders, but I promise you I will do my best to obey what has been put in place over us. Out of respect for you and out of submission to you. The church Church's leadership is accountable to the congregation. Number seven, now we get into the really important stuff. The local church gives evidence to the power of the gospel. The local church gives evidence to the power of the gospel. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the context is spiritual gifts. Paul is arguing for an orderly use of the spiritual gifts. He says, I don't want you to act like you're crazy It should be a display of order because God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. Just read Genesis 1. But in in speaking of these things, he he talks about how uh, the church's order and the way it conducts itself might affect those who are not part of the church, but who are in the assembly. Notice, however, in this passage that Paul assumes that outsiders might come in the church. So it's not just gathering together that makes someone part of a church. What is it that makes somebody part of a church? We'll talk about that next week. 1 Corinthians 14, 21 through 25. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers... But for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. In other words, when the apostles could go out and speak a language that they hadn't learned for the sake of the spread of the gospel, that was a gift for unbelievers. But in the church, prophecy, that is what I'm doing right now, speaking forth, that's what the word prophecy means, the truths of God, that's for believers. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? If you've ever watched TBN and you have, have, and you have thought, that looks crazy. Paul is giving you a hearty amen. Verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. When a church is unified, organized, and proclaims the truth of God, non-believers get saved. When it is divided and chaotic, 
We don't represent God's truth well. Uh, John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's inside this room. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do people who are not disciples know who are disciples? Because of the way we love other disciples. Not by the way we disagree, argue, fight, demand our preferences be met. We love one another. The local church gives evidence to the power of the gospel. By the way, this is a whole other sermon for another day. In order to give evidence to the power of the gospel, the gospel has to have power in you. Number eight, and finally, the local church is precious to the Lord. If you hear me say nothing else today, hear that. The local church is precious to the Lord. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Silver and gold. It's what backs currency. They are perishable things, and we were not bought with those things. We were bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Perfect, priceless, precious blood. The church is precious to the Lord. The two biggest excuses I hear about why people don't have to go to church or participate in the life of the church would be a better way to say it, is one, because I don't have to. I'm the church wherever I go. Like being on a team, that's only true if you participate in the regular gathering of the team. If you participate in the mission and practice and, and the, the, the game, if you're in the game, so to speak. It's non-biblical nonsense is really what it is. And by the way, if you have to work really hard to justify why something in your life is okay, it's probably just not okay, right? You shouldn't have to work that hard to justify your actions. If they're right, they should be self-evident. And number two, I don't have time. I got bad news for everybody. You have as much time as everyone else. You get 168 hours in a week. 168 hours in a week. If you spend six hours a night sleeping, you'll spend 25% of your week sleeping. If you spend two hours a day eating and cooking, some of you are like, man, that's a lot. Others of you are like, that's it? If you spend two hours eating and cooking a day, that's 8.3% of your week. If you spend 40 hours a week at work, that's 23.8% of your week. If you spend, as the average adult does, between 15 and 30 hours per week on social media, that's 9 to 18% of your week. If you, like the average American above the age of two, spend six hours a day on some kind of screen, not for work, that's 25% of your week. 
But if you, like we encourage you to do, invest your whole Sunday morning from 9 to noon, especially if I go long, which is pretty much guaranteed, three hours of your Sunday is 1.7% of your week. If a screen can get 25%, if social media can get 9%, then help me understand why the Lord, as he commands, cannot get 1.7%. Stop rationalizing away the church. Stop making excuses. Stop pretending you're on the team if you're not. And if you're not, get in the game. The church is precious to the Lord. Which means, if you're in the game, you are precious to the Lord. Because it is not a place, it is not a building, it is not an organization. It is the gathered people of God. And if you don't like the gathered people of God, you're not going to like heaven. It's just the reality of it. Lord, uh, we have come together as a church to sing your praise, to hear from you in your word. Lord, where we have gotten this wrong and we have all gotten these things wrong, you give us grace in Christ. And we thank you for that grace. Lord, give us, give us high views of your church and of who we are and what you have done for us. And Lord, may we be unified now as we come together around your table. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that we are late, but uh, I do not want to neglect uh, this time in communion that we have. And so... Uh, Anthony, I think, I don't know if I have a microphone up. Oh, I do. I've got one here for you. How about now? Yeah, good. All right, well, I'm going to beg your forgiveness because uh, I unexpectedly spent the night in Legrand, and if I look half thrown together, that's because I am. If I'm a little foggy on the details of how this next part is going to go, that's because I am. So, uh, uh, are there going to be people who will help me pass this out? I suspect there will. Okay, that sounds good. All right. So, one thing that I uh, was reflecting on uh, this week is um, uh, church unity. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, Pastor Logan was talking about today. And and that's, that's something that is... Uh, does not does not come easy, you know. We talked about uh, our different views of masks and our different views on uh, how we should respond to COVID, and uh, you know that's that's a real thing. That is something that uh, has been has been difficult. And as we uh, get together um, with our uh, brothers and sisters uh, who uh, speak Spanish uh, this morning, you know that's that's something that is not uh, that, that's something that's difficult to uh, to have and experience unity in, and I think we have uh, more work to do on both of those fronts. But um, one thing that I was uh, reminded of 
today as Pastor Logan preached was that uh, church unity, the fact that we have it, is evidence of the power of the gospel. And the fact that I was trying to sing and, and doing a poor job, if you were near me, trying to sing in Spanish this morning on a Sunday morning is evidence of the power of the gospel. How, you know, I would not be doing that uh, in, you know, for, for any other reason. So uh, even though I think we have work to do, uh, uh, the gospel is powerful and is evidenced right now among us. So let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, which speaks about this, chapter 10, verse uh, 16. The cup of the blessing that we bless is not a participation in the, uh, I'm sorry, the cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. So we who are many different, speak different languages, uh, have, have different views on things uh, because we partake in the one bread, our one, our one body. So let, uh, okay, we've, we've passed the cup. Okay, very good. Oh, we've passed everything. Okay. See, I told you I need to beg your forgiveness on this. Okay. The cup is nested together with the bread, bread underneath the cup. Okay. All right, so let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll partake of it together. So, this is in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. Give me a second here to take the bread with you. He took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do it together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink it together in remembrance of him. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for uh, the power of the gospel, the power that we can be united despite our many differences, and that we get to worship um, you, uh, proclaim your uh, death, which makes it possible for us to do that. So it is an honor to do that uh, with these uh, people to today uh, who uh, I am uh, united with uh, because of Christ. And, we thank you for this, and uh, we thank you for all of these things, and we pray it in your name. Amen.